0: Based on the documented need for additional education in prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and renal cell carcinoma, the AUA is launching a series of podcasts, the AUA Expert Exchange Podcast, Discussions about Managing GU Cancer. These activities are designed to increase the clinician's competency in the application of new and emerging treatment options, including their mechanisms of actions and associated side effects. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. Amgen, Astellis, AstraZeneca, Bristol Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org.
1: Hi, this is Vic Nitty, Chair of the AUA Office of Education. Welcome, welcome start over. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, chair of the AUA Office of Education, welcoming you to another Office of Education podcast. This one in our series of the AUA Expert Exchange podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. And today's topic is sequencing of agents and combination of treatment options for renal cell carcinoma. I am very pleased to introduce my co-host, Dr. Brian Shuck. Brian is Associate Professor and Director of the Kidney Cancer Program and the GU Cancer Genetics Program at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Welcome, Brian.
2: Thanks for having me today, Vic.
1: Well, we certainly have an interesting topic to talk about today, and that is... um, uh, talking about uh, new therapies for uh, metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Uh, I just want to start by uh, stating our learning objectives, and they are to describe a patient specific treatment plan that optimizes the use of targeted and immunologic agents for the treatment of kidney cancer and explain best practices in renal cell carcinoma selection for various treatment options. So, Brian, I'd like to start by just asking you, historically, how have we treated metastatic kidney cancer?
2: So, Vic, a lot has changed. The past 15 years, the whole field has been revolutionized. But, you know, when I started out in residency, the only treatment option was immunotherapy. So interferon alpha had been the mainstay of therapy for many years because chemotherapy just didn't work. IL-2 started to uh, be given in the late 1980s, and it wasn't until 1992 until IL-2 became the only FDA-approved drug for metastatic kidney cancer, and we called that era the cytokine era, and that was really the only available options for the past uh, you know decade or two until 2005 when everything started to change.
1: Now, can you tell our audience how those agents worked or how they work? Well,
2: so if I could, I probably would win uh, an award because we really don't have a precise molecular mechanism how IL-2 and interferon actually work in the patient. They're non-specific stimulants, and they cause a whole host of uh, molecular changes uh, in the immune system, and they cause tumor regression. Uh, IL-2 has about a 10 to 12% response rate with maybe a 2 to 4% complete response rate in historic series. And we, if we knew exactly how they worked, be able to select patients who are going to respond. But still, it's really unclear.
1: So now what's changed in the past few years? You mentioned there was an explosion uh, in, in the last few years. How has the standard of care changed over the past few years for the treatment of metastatic kidney cancer?
2: So a lot of this came out of work from many folks after the discovery of the VHL gene at the National Cancer Institute, led by a a group of scientists working with Marston Linehan. Um, And this year, the Nobel Prize was given out for this type of work uh, with Bill Kalin, Peter Radcliffe, and Greg Semenza, really focusing how VHL dysregulation leads to upregulation of what we call the hypoxia-inducible factors and VEGF, what we call angiogenesis, which uh, can be targeted. So starting in 2005, there was a whole host of agents that block the pathway uh, of blood vessel formation and maintenance in uh, tumors. The First, 2005, serafinib, 2006, sunitinib became approved, and it led to a whole host of drugs targeting the tumor vascular supply and shifting the uh, therapy away from the cytokine era to what we call the TKI, or tyrosine kinase inhibitor, or anti-angiogenic era, which has been the mainstay of therapy for many years. 13 new drugs approved, uh, about t- uh, 10 of them are drugs targeting the tumor vasculature.
1: And how well do those drugs work as uh, compared to um, those that just gave a, a, an immune response stimulation?
2: So in the, in the initial era, 2006, 2007 to 10, when these were really the only uh, uh, options available, Patients would get one of these agents, uh, such as Sutent, followed by maybe an mTOR inhibitor. The median survival, overall survival in the cytokine era was generally only 12 to maybe 18 months. Uh, in this newer era, survival hadn't pushed it to, to potentially two to two and a half years, um, and patients were more able to uh, better tolerate a lot of these agents. So it was an incremental step forward, but still not a home run.
1: But now I understand that immune therapy has become relevant again.
2: Yeah, so a lot of this work also uh, is due to last year's Nobel Prize winners, which was a trio of uh, a couple scientists from the U.S., Jim Allison at MD Anderson, Gordon Freeman at Dana-Farber, and a Japanese uh, physician scientist. Uh, and basically they were able to figure out that the Immune system is recognizing that there are tumor cells, but the tumor will uh, have a cell surface uh, um, receptor called pdl one which will then have uh, crosstalk with the uh, T cell, and it will tell the T cell to leave me alone. The same thing happens with the B7H1 or CTLA-4 pathway, but basically uh, the tumor cells are not being attacked by
1: now, is that what we call a checkpoint?
2: Yeah. Now, go after this tumor cell, and these have now been revolutionizing the way we treat multiple forms of cancers, including kidney cancer. These agents are approved for uh, dr- uh, tumor types such as melanoma, non-small cell lung cancer, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, uh, et cetera. But these are what we call targeted immunotherapy or checkpoint inhibitors. And these have now uh, uh, made their way into kidney cancer, first starting in 2015, a second-line therapy, but recently, in the past two years, moving forward to first-line therapy for kidney cancer.
1: Which are the agents that are used for kidney cancer?
2: So right now, we have FDA approval for three drugs. We have uh, two PD-1 inhibitors, Pembrolizumab which is used in combination uh, with axitinib. We have nivolumab, which is a PD-1 agent, which is uh, uh, also approved uh, as monotherapy or in conjunction with a CTLA agent called ipilimumab. We also have one recently approved. It's a PD-L1 inhibitor called avelumab, uh, which is given in conjunction with axitinib.
1: Now, are these uh, do, do these work equivalent, equivalently? Is there one that's better than the other, or um, are have we been able to identify specific patients that are more likely to respond to one of these agents or combinations of agents as opposed to others?
2: You know, like every cancer field, the way forward is to pick the weakest link in, in what's an FDA approved drug. And these have been compared to
3: sunitinib,
2: which has been a first line therapy. So the keynote trial, which is a trial of Pembro and or Pembrolizumab and axitinib, they only went up against
3: sunitinib
2: and they showed they were far superior to
3: sunitinib
2: with the ipilimumab and the volumab combination in the, um, in the checkmate study, they were compared against
3: funitinib
2: as well. And then the same thing with the Avelumab accidentative studies called Javelin 101. That was compared against
3: funitinib.
2: So these agents are all superior to
3: funitinib.
2: There is obviously uh, a need to compare them against each other. But uh, it's very hard to convince industry to put their agent up against another competitor's uh, uh, drug. And that type of uh, trial would only be able to be done in probably a cooperative group setting. Uh, And that is something that has been proposed already to see which is the best combination.
1: Is there a reason why kidney cancer is particularly sensitive to checkpoint inhibitors? Or is kidney well, cancer you, particularly sensitive to checkpoint inhibitors?
2: Yeah, I mean, it is one of the, you know, five or six cancers which has an FDA label for checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Uh, a lot of these uh, uh, cancers have been studied in this amazing uh, NIH effort called the Cancer Genome Atlas, which I have the fortune of being part of uh, uh, the past couple of years. But the uh, clear cell variant of kidney cancer is among the most immune infiltrated tumors. Back in the 1980s, when you know my predecessor for the UCLA Kidney Cancer Program, Ari Beldegren, was working with Steve Rosenberg, they would digest tumors. Um, apparently, they used to do this in the hallway. But half of a tumor's weight is actually uh, T-cell infiltration. So there's just all these T cells sitting there. And it wasn't until really seminal work showing that the T cells are turned off by this PD-1/PDL-1 interaction. Did they able to realize that we can harness some of these immune infiltrates? And again, clear cell kidney cancer is just tremendously inflamed with these uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes.
1: So now, Brian, in most cases, is are uh, checkpoint inhibitors given together with uh, anti-angiogenic uh, therapies? Um, and is there any increased morbidity in given the two drugs together?
2: So Vic, in most oncologic fields, if you have one drug that works, it's natural to add a second drug which works and see if they work better together, either additively or synergistically. And that's what's happened in kidney cancer. We've taken anti-angiogenic drugs which work well, and we've decided to take the checkpoint inhibitor drugs, and hence this doublet uh, has been compared against one anti-angiogenic drug. Now, of course, there is uh, interest now in doing triplet therapy to immune checkpoints with an uh, anti-VEGF uh, um, uh, treatment. And obviously, the more drugs you give, the more toxicity, but these are fairly well-tolerated agents. There is obviously uh, added toxicity, uh, and you just have to know how to manage them, and, uh, and patients will tolerate both of these uh, doublets pretty well.
1: So, now what is the current thinking on dealing with the primary tumor? Is cytoreductive nephrectomy recommended uh, up front? It, should nephrectomy be delayed until uh, immunotherapy is started? Should it be um, not done altogether?
2: So, we have excellent randomized trials from uh, about years ago reporting out showing that there was a survival advantage with cytoreductive nephrectomy from the EORTC and the SWOG groups. Uh, in recent TKI era, there's a lot of retrospective data that had shown a clinical benefit to doing cytoreductive nephrectomy. And the past 20 years, guidelines supported debulking in select patients, those who have a large primary tumor those with good performance status, those without brain metastases. Uh, and it has been only until recently where several trials have reported out and they've reinforced what we already knew. You should not operate on bad surgical candidates. You should not operate on patients with um, you know, small primaries, extensive burden of disease, patients who really need to have their systemic disease controlled should not go for surgery because they often will have further progression of their distant disease. There was one trial uh, called the SIRTIME trial, which looked at the order of uh, systemic therapy and surgery. And even though it was a small study, it did show that probably it is not harmful to delay cytoreductive nephrectomy uh, if you give systemic therapy up front. That was in a era of tyrosine kinase uh, uh, agents alone. Another study called the CARMINA study did look at comparing
3: sunitinib,
2: which is not the current standard of care, versus sadar nephrectomy and
3: sunitinib.
2: And this trial was a very different cohort than most of us would want to operate on. Very advanced disease, three or four sites of disease, small, smaller primary tumors, um, mostly uh, intermediate and poor risk uh, patients. Um, 44% of patients had really poor risk um, uh, uh, categorization of their disease. And those are patients most surgeons would not want to operate on. And that trial did show that if you operated on patients who are very uh, sick with very advanced disease, they don't do well with surgery. So it's no surprise there, but how do we uh, expect things will change with the immune checkpoint inhibitors with surgery, it's unclear. There is a SWOG trial, which will be opening in the next uh, 6 to 12 months, which will compare a uh, cytoreductive nephrectomy after 4 to 6 months of checkpoint inhibitor therapy versus checkpoint inhibitor therapy alone. And there's also a European study similarly designed, uh, uh, which is called the Nordic Sun Uh, study, and both of these will kind of redefine the current role of cytoreductive nephrectomy uh, in this modern treatment era.
1: So Brian, if we sort of go through the last uh, 20 plus years, and we think, you know, overall survival uh, in the, before we had any agents, and then when we had the cytokines, and then when we had the Uh, anti-angiogenic agents, and now with uh, our newer uh, immune therapy agents in combination with uh, anti-angiogenic therapies. How has survival changed?
2: So we are making remarkable progress. And we now have 13 new drugs. Obviously, uh, that's incredible since 2005. I don't know a field which has that many new agents. If you look at most series from the 80s, 90s, the median survival of metastatic kidney cancer was probably 12 to 16 months. Recent data from updated series of the ipinevo versus
3: sunitinib
2: uh, trial, the checkmate trial, median survival for metastatic kidney cancer is between three and a half years to four years, which is remarkable. In the past, 11% of patients would live five years. Now, about 35, 35% of patients are living five years with metastatic disease. So we're not curing patients reliably yet, but we're making patients live quality, uh, a long quality of life and pretty good quantity of life. And uh, even though we have more work to be done, I think we can look back and we can be proud of all the accomplishments that have been made in metastatic kidney cancer.
1: Now, one thing you mentioned before is um, the um, th- that clear cell tumors are particularly immunoresponsive. Um, how about non-clear cell tumors? What kind of progress has been made on those?
2: So this has been an area which has been very challenging. The classic agents, uh, Sutent or uh, Everolimus, Hemserolimus, they have very poor... Um, clinical activity in some of these non-clear cell variants. However, we are making progress as well. Uh, We are performing, again, in in the Southwest Oncology Group, which I'm the uh, co-chair of the renal team. There is a trial led by uh, my good friend Monty Paul, which is comparing uh, three different meta-inhibitors versus
3: sunitinib
2: for papillary kidney cancer. Two arms are closed, and we have now fully accrued this trial which is basically now comparing cabozantinib, a MET and VEGF uh, uh, inhibitor versus
3: sunitinib.
2: And we'll we'll soon know whether this is going to be the standard of care. And obviously we have checkpoint inhibitors now available, and we have now activity from a trial called the Keynote 427 trial, that papillary, chromophobe, uh, some collecting ducts, they also can respond to uh, checkpoint inhibitor therapy. And there was a study from a pdl one inhibitor called a atezolizumab with bevacizumab, a VEGETH antibody, which shows there's approximately a 25 to 30% response rate in these non-clear cell variants. We do have more work to be done for these variants. We have to better understand the targets so we can potentially uh, have more uh, intelligently designed trials. But... The future is very promising for therapy in this uh, because these patients can respond to combination uh, uh, therapy with immune checkpoint inhibitors.
1: Brian, is there any role for genetic testing in kidney cancer?
2: So, yes. So, a lot of these uh, uh, patients who come in early age of onset, bilateral, multifocal, or some of these varying histologies, they may harbor a germline alteration. And people have said, "Oh, it's so rare; these are unusual diseases." We know things like VHL is one in 35,000 individuals, but there are some there's some data that five to eight percent of patients may have a germline mutation, which is responsible for their uh, kidney cancer. In patients with advanced uh, non-clear cell variants, there are a couple entities which may play a large role up to maybe 5 to 15 percent of non-clear cell tumors which present in a metastatic setting, they may have a genetic predisposition. The one cancer I study called HLRCC, uh, which is a uh, germline mutation in fumarate hydrothase, this was long thought to be a rare condition. We have data which is now in press in cancer that this condition is present in probably 1 in 2,000 individuals are walking around with this genetic alteration, which is predisposing them to develop a kidney tumor. We haven't scratched the surface yet in understanding who is at risk and really do not know who should be tested other than those with early age of onset, family history, bilaterality, multifocality, or other uh, uh, cancer or benign skin conditions.
1: So, so Brian, what would you say today is the standard of care when a urologist identifies a patient with metastatic renal cell cancer? Okay, so uh,
2: there's a lot which kind of goes into these decisions. Uh, We do consider somebody's histology, which is very important, clear cell versus other histology. We try to understand what type of risk group they're in basically a constellation of all their clinical and laboratory characteristics, and we call performance status. We have three buckets of patients uh, in this grouping called the IMDC category, uh, good, intermediate, or poor risk. Uh, most of our patients today are treated with, in conjunction with medical oncology. Uh, I'm fortunate that we have a multidisciplinary clinic and we discuss the management of all newly diagnosed patients together. Uh, or those who have recurrence of their disease. But right now, if someone is symptomatic from their distant disease, we get them on systemic therapy. If somebody has minimal symptoms uh, from their distant disease and has potentially a large or bulky primary tumor, we still consider that there may be a role of cytoreductive nephrectomy. I am having patients get systemic therapy first nowadays, even when they have a large primary tumor. Um, If I think that there is going to be any delay in initiation of systemic therapy, such as someone who has a T4 lesion going into, let's say, their liver or their pancreas, where they have a large bulky tumor thrombus, I may give them a couple cycles of medical therapy and then take them to surgery. You need to have a close medical oncology collaborator, and uh, these decisions can be made together. I favor uh, the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab in someone who's going to be going to surgery at some point, because there's no increased perioperative risks. So if you're going to have someone going to have a delayed surgery, giving them a VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibitor in conjunction with, let's say, a PD-1 agent, you always have to worry that uh, there could be some potential for a perioperative issues such as wound healing, and you have to potentially have a rebound effect when you take them off therapy. So a lot, a lot of uh, considerations here.
1: So, Brian, I know that kidney cancer is something that you are extremely passionate about, and I just want to uh, give you a couple of minutes to sort of look into your crystal ball and tell me what do you see happening over the next few years in the treatment of this disease?
2: So for metastatic kidney cancer, uh, I hope that we're going to have biomarkers which will be better able to select which patients should have which therapy. I'm hopeful that we'll be able to better understand some of these uh, more unusual variants with uh, different types of therapy. Um, We have a couple of these papillary variants which are grouped together this whole papillary type 2 is really a smorgasbord of different types of papillary tumors. I'm hoping we'll be able to better molecularly classify different types of tumors into different uh, baskets for uh, better therapy. Uh, I am also hopeful that our uh, our uh, nasty tumor sarcomatoid kidney cancers, will have amongst the best uh, the best outcomes because these have a different microenvironment and we're starting to see that these types of tumors may be extremely responsive to immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. And I'm hopeful that the era of these patients having poor prognosis will be very different.
1: Well, you know, certainly a lot has happened in the last, uh, in the last 20 years. And, you know, in, in talking to you, I feel optimistic that uh, as uh, people like yourself continue to work on this, uh, that there's a chance that we can see a cure for metastatic kidney cancer at some point in the future. And I'm sure that uh, that's what you and your colleagues are really working towards.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the goal. Back in the the older generation, you have a one in maybe, you know, 100 chance of having a complete response to IL-2. We're not seeing that, uh, those odds anymore. We're seeing patients have really amazing uh uh, responses to these agents we do not know if some of these amazing responses will be durable for five or ten years but that is the hope that these patients that are having these really deep dramatic responses will potentially be uh considered cures five ten years down the road
1: well brian thank you so much for uh for for this podcast it was really uh very informative um any final words for our audience
0: no,
2: I think uh, hopefully the next 10 years will continue to be as exciting as uh, it's been uh, this past decade.
1: Well, great. I'd also like to thank uh, the audience, as always, for uh, listening. And uh, for more information, uh, please visit auanet.org university. Thank you. Thank you.